Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in History. My name is Derek Litvak, and I'll be your host. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Professor Amanda L. Tyler about her book, Habeas Corpus in Wartime, From the Tower in London to Guantanamo Bay, published by Oxford University Press in 2017. Professor Tyler is the Shannon Cecil Turner Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley School of Law. Habeas Corpus in Wartime is a comprehensive history of the writ of habeas corpus in Anglo-America. From its beginnings to the English Habeas Corpus Act of 1679, to its suspension during the American Civil War, to World War II internment camps, to the War on Terror, Professor Tyler provides a compelling look at how important this writ has been during wartime in history. uh, Professor Tyler, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So I guess to get things started, can you tell our listeners why you became interested in this topic? Why did you choose to study it? That's a great question to start. I was fascinated, generally speaking, with constitutional law and the separation of powers as a law student. And shortly after I graduated from law school, Uh, the unfortunate and very tragic events of September 11th happened. And suddenly, a lot of these issues about individual liberty, the power of the executive to detain prisoners during wartime, and the role of the courts in checking the same came to the fore. And as I became a legal scholar during this period, I came to realize that very little historical work had been done on these now very timely and important questions. And I became interested in pursuing that work. And the more I did, the more interesting and fascinating it has been to me. Um, And so it's just work that continued on. And I have really enjoyed trying to dig into the history of executive detention and the role of the separation of powers in wartime and the role of the Constitution and trying to unearth and recover and tell those stories in my work so that they can inform the debates that we have today about how the law should confront these kinds of problems. And for our listeners who are less legally minded, don't know as much about the law, but are interested in learning, can you briefly explain what the writ of habeas corpus is and what it does? So the classical idea behind the writ of habeas corpus is that, to use a a classic example, if the King of England decides to throw you in the Tower of London, as was not uncommon in the 17th century, then you would seek a, a writ of habeas corpus from the Court of King's Bench, which is to say you would ask the Court of King's Bench to take jurisdiction over your body as a prisoner the, the detention of the prisoner is what the corpus, as it were, is what gives a court jurisdiction. And you would ask them to review the legality of that detention. And if they find, if the court finds that your detention is illegal, then 
they would grant the writ and grant you your freedom, give you discharge from your detention. And that's how it worked at its inceptions. At its very origins, the writ of habeas corpus is a judicial creation. So that's important to the history of the writ because it suggests uh, that because it's judicially created, there may be some creative role for the courts in exercising habeas jurisdiction and awarding relief. Now, when we translate that into our constitutional tradition, that gets a little bit more complicated, and we can talk about that as we go forward. But again, at its most basic, the idea is the court takes, or a court, takes jurisdiction over the body of the prisoner and then calls on the jailer, the warden, to defend the legality of the detention. And in the beginning of your book, you mentioned that uh, habeas has its origins not in liberty, but in power. And so in in speaking about how, you know, you might be using it, say, in England, when the monarch puts you in jail, um, throws you in the Tower of London, and then you're trying to become free, it might be, you know, natural for someone to think of this as being a writ of liberty. But you say it actually has its origins in power and that this is important to recognize. So how is that and why? Well, it's really interesting. It, it, at its origins, the idea of the writ of habeas corpus as carried out by the Court of King's Bench was, and, and Paul Halliday in his masterful book on uh, habeas corpus goes into this in some detail. The The idea was that the Court of King's Bench acted for the king in trying to, if anything else, sort of take stock of the king's subjects and where they were and the conditions of their liberty. But that's really exercising the king's prerogative and looking out for the king's power over his subjects. There's another aspect to the story that's also about power, and it's about the separation of powers and the early struggles of the 17th and 18th century that then inform the backdrop of how our constitutional structure emerges here. And that is to say that the Court of King's Bench was under the thumb of the king and so tended to do the king's bidding. And so when you look at earlier, early habeas cases from, say, the time of Charles I, you find that when he throws various persons in the Tower of London, Although the judges on the Court of King's Bench might be inclined to grant them their freedom, they don't because they can't question the king's power. So what this, the king says goes. In effect, in one famous case, case of the Five Knights, the attorney general representing the crown's interest says the king is the source of all law. And so to the extent that the prisoners are requesting some sort of due process of law, they've been given it. The king has decreed that they're bad and they should be put in the Tower of London. They got their due process, as it were. And so when we think about this as connected to power, that story, I think, very palpably explains that the writ needed something more to become a writ of liberty. And it, it, there are many steps before we get there, but a big one that comes with the Habeas Corpus Act of 1679 and some legislation that preceded it is that we see Parliament enter the debates and, and take some control over the law of detention. Now, at the outset, we should say this is Parliament doing this 
to increase its own power at the expense of the king. Not necessarily was Parliament doing this because it was concerned with individual liberty, although there is some support for that proposition. But it's part of the rise of parliamentary supremacy that we see happen during and around the period of the Glorious Revolution. The parliament is taking control of a lot of different areas of the law and and the political world in England and in Britain uh, later. And this is a part of that story. So parliament creates legislation that's now going to govern the power of the crown to take prisoners. And that is the English Habeas Corpus Act of 1679. It is an enormously important component to the story of the development of habeas jurisprudence. And it's a component to the story that I argue in the book has been underplayed and underappreciated. And speaking of the Habeas Corpus Act, when you're talking about that in the book, you stress one, how important it is, as you just said. And then you also point out that almost immediately after passing it, you know, within, you know, a set amount of years, Parliament also enacts a suspension clause for it. So what is what does that mean? And in terms of talking about power structures and institutions vying for power, why is it important that Parliament pretty quickly uh, legislated to be able to suspend habeas corpus? Yeah. So let me offer a little bit more background on the act, the original act. So you have the Habeas Corpus Act of 1679, and it's the culmination decades upon decades of struggle on the part of various individuals. And the story really began uh, with John Selden and Sir Edward Cook pushing for this idea that we would come to a place where the law would settle pursuant to which the king would no longer have the power unilaterally to detain people for any number of reasons, as the crown had been doing, Charles I in particular. Where we wind up in the act is with the culmination of the aspirations of Cook and Selden. And we have legislation that provides, even with respect to suspected traitors, the legislation in the Habeas Corpus Act says that the crown can no longer arrest on suspicion alone. So to be more specific, what the legislation provided is that for any individual that's going to be arrested by the crown, they have to get a timely criminal trial within two terms. That's what the legislation said. So that meant in in real time that someone had to be tried within three to six months. And the legislation says if they're not tried within that period, then, then the courts, the judges are obliged under penalty of fines to release those prisoners. They are, in other words, entitled to their freedom if they don't get a speedy trial on criminal charges. That became a huge limitation and constraint on the power of the king to detain prisoners. And it even applied by its terms to suspected traitors, as I've said. So that's a very big deal when suddenly you have turmoil and you have a king that flees, in the case of James, and a new king and queen, William and Mary, who are crowned after the Glorious Revolution. James and his supporters, the, 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 the so-called Jacobites, very immediately be- begin plotting his return to the throne. And so you have great instability during this period. 
and you have a lot of suspected traitors. This is a problem when you now have the English Habeas Corpus Act in effect because you can't arrest on suspicion alone. And that is why William goes to Parliament in 1689 right after taking the throne, 10 years, as you said, after the passage of the Habeas Corpus Act, and he requests through an emissary that Parliament suspend the protections of the Habeas Corpus Act. And he does so because he recognizes that habeas will free anyone he arrests on suspicion alone and doesn't try. And he claims the need for the power to arrest on suspicion alone. In other words, there isn't enough time and there's too great a threat to do a full investigation and to try people in due course. They need to round up the suspected traitors who are plotting his undoing and take and restore order. And that's the idea behind suspension at its, at its origins. Parliament obliges and it enacts a suspension in request or in response to William's request. And we see a wave of arrests in the logbooks of the Privy Council immediately in the wake of the passage of this provision. And, you know, I, I find it interesting in terms of, you know, thinking about how uh, the writ of habeas corpus is so kind of grounded in power and not so much liberty and how that kind of transplants into the American uh, context, as you hinted at earlier when talking about, you know, American constitutional order. And so when we kind of fast forward to, you know, the eve of the of American independence or what would become American independence, how does habeas corpus factor into, you know, calls for, say, imperial reform and eventual calls for independence? It's really an important component to the story. And, and here again, I think the role of habeas in the American Revolution and in the lead up to independence has been downplayed and underappreciated. What you have to understand by further way of backdrop is that Parliament suspended numerous times between that first suspension and the American Revolutionary War. And it's part, again, of that story of power because Parliament is taking control over the law of detention, taking control away from the executive, but also on these occasions of suspension, empowering the executive to arrest on suspicion alone, to arrest outside the criminal process. And it's always in response to war or threats to the throne. There's one suspension that responds to an assassination plot to kill William. Um, and, and this is the backdrop that feeds into a story chronicled in the pages of Blackstone and Henry Kerr and others that the Habeas Corpus Act, when in effect, is this glorious protector of individual liberty. Blackstone, who was studied by all the early Americans, goes so far as to call the English Habeas Corpus Act nothing less than a second Magna Carta. That is really big time language. He's saying this is so important to the protection of English liberties. And the Americans are reading this and they are wanting, as it were, to claim those protections, to claim the Habeas Corpus Act for themselves. But a part of the story of habeas corpus in the American tradition that has really been forgotten is that numerous colonies tried to enact 
the protections of the Habeas Corpus Act and claim the act for themselves, and they were vetoed in those efforts. The Crown did not allow them to do so on the stated basis that the English Habeas Corpus Act did not apply in the colonies. And this fomented great resentment on the part of the colonists. And so when you read the statements coming out of the Continental Congress and letters of prominent individuals in the years leading up to the beginning of the War for Independence, we find numerous uh, references, excuse me, to the English Habeas Corpus Act, to its importance, and to the fact that the Americans want to be able to claim it for themselves. And that's a big part of the story. They're complaining about taxation without representation, as we all know. They're complaining about being denied the jury trial, but they're also complaining about being denied the English Habeas Corpus Act. And so in the immediate wake of the beginning of the Revolutionary War, one finds a wave of states adopting the English Habeas Corpus Act for themselves. And I can give numerous examples, but one of the best examples comes out of Georgia. In 1777, so just as we're just getting into the war, they adopt their first constitution as a state. And they have in there a provision that says the principles of the Habeas Corpus Act shall be part of this constitution. And as though to make it abundantly clear what they mean when they reference the Habeas Corpus Act, the original circulation of the Georgia Constitution appended copies verbatim copies of the English Habeas Corpus Act of 1679. And we see similar adoptions through common law decisions, through statutory adoptions, through constitutional adoptions of the protections of the English Habeas Corpus Act throughout the original states. And it's a story that culminates uh, with Joseph Story writing and and others, uh, James Kent writing, that the English Habeas Corpus Act is the basis for all early habeas law in this country. So it's a huge part of the story. But so is suspension, because to deal with the American prisoners that were brought to England during the war, and of course in England, the Habeas Corpus Act applied, Parliament suspended the act, but did so only applicable to the Americans who were brought to English soil for detention during the war. And that was about 3,000 prisoners over the course of the war. And they were predominantly kept in uh, a couple of castles that were designated to hold prisoners. But there were also some prisoners held as far away as in Edinburgh Castle. And today, if you go to Edinburgh Castle and you tour it, you will find that they have preserved uh, an area in which I think it was about 15 American prisoners were kept. And it's a really great thing to go see because they've also preserved one of the wooden doors to one of the jail cells where one of the American prisoners carved the stars and stripes, carved the new American flag right on the door, and they have preserved it there. Well, wow, that's, uh, that's pretty interesting. I did not know about that. Um, I, I know for myself, I think that a lot of people, you know, when they think about, say, you know, the Constitution and, you know, the rights associated with it. You know, if we're talking about people who don't have legal training or not, 
you know, familiar with U.S. history, you know, in depth, if you ask them about the Constitution, they usually think about the Bill of Rights um, and all of that. And one thing that I really appreciate about your book is that it's stressing that, you know, habeas corpus is, you know, one and very important to the American Revolution. And it's very important to the creation of the Constitution. And in reality, if we're talking about rights that the Constitution enshrines, habeas corpus is one of the very few that the core constitution itself actually protects. And it shows just how important the founding uh, generation thought habeas was. I think that is such an important point. And again, another thing that we don't appreciate from this vantage today, the bill of rights obviously comes immediately on the, on the heels of ratification of the constitution. And everyone knows it's coming. That's part of the, the deal that gets the constitution to the finish line, but the habeas provision is in the original body of the constitution. It's right there in article one in the legislative provision. We have what we call the suspension clause. And it says that the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended except when in cases of rebellion or invasion, the public safety may require it. So we see right away that this is so important. It's in the original body of the constitution. And you can also appreciate from the terms of the clause why we need to know a little bit about what the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus is, because it's being in that clause protected from suspension. So we also need to know what suspension is. And they are sort of, uh, they're, they're opposite sides of the same coin. The habeas corpus privilege that the founding generation cared so passionately about was protection against being thrown in prison outside the criminal process. And suspension, which they fully appreciated, was a very big deal, given that there had been a suspension during the Revolutionary War. And many people complained about it, including George Washington, very prominently in his manifesto. Americans understood it was a big deal. And so they constitutionalized limitations on when suspension could take place. And specifically, they constitutionalized limitations that would only allow for suspension in cases of rebellion or invasion. So in very, very big deal situations where there are severe threats to the constitutional order. Outside of that context, the understanding was you could not be arrested. If you could claim the protections of the Constitution and domestic law, you could not be arrested outside the criminal process and detained outside the criminal process. This is important because it was part of the argument for some of those who supported the Constitution, whether or not it had a Bill of Rights. So, for example, if you read the Federalist Papers, Alexander Hamilton, who is more than just the namesake of a great musical, he was promoting the Constitution very aggressively in his writings in the Federalist Papers, and he pointed to the English Habeas Corpus Act and specifically its connection and embodiment in the suspension clause as a reason why we didn't even need a Bill of Rights. And you can appreciate where he was coming from, knowing the history of the act and suspension and understanding that the protections that had long been associated with the act included a right to a speedy trial. And if you have that right through the suspension clause, then suddenly the need for a Bill of Rights is not as strong. And that's the point that Hamilton was trying to make. And it's an important point to keep in mind as we think about what the suspension clause means today. 
And speaking of suspension, uh, what is the first time that Americans debate uh, suspending habeas corpus? Because you present this episode uh, in your book, and it also deals with another major player in a famous musical as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed. But before we get to Jefferson and Burr, uh, we do have to I, I do have to mention that the first suspensions in the United States were in several of the states during the Revolutionary War. Quite a number of states suspended habeas uh, during the Revolutionary War to deal with the dis- disaffected. They treated the British redcoats as enemy soldiers of a foreign state. And they were, when captured, they were labeled prisoners of war. But everyone else, everyone domestically, once independence was declared, were deemed to be Americans who owed allegiance to their states and the new national government. And that was a problem during the war because you had a lot of people who were disloyal. And that's why we see a wave of suspensions in a bunch of the battleground states during the war. And that's also an important backdrop to the Constitution. But then, as you say, we have our first proposal in American history at the federal level for a suspension during the Jefferson administration. And President Jefferson effectively asked for it to deal with Aaron Burr. Uh, uh, who's, uh, they're both big figures in the Hamilton uh, musical. But it's kind of a crazy proposition from this vantage point to imagine that the limited, and I, I really emphasize that word, limited threat posed by Aaron Burr could somehow justify a suspension. And what is even more shocking is that the suspension proposal, the legislation that was drafted and originated in the Senate, flew through the Senate and passed. But then it gets to the House, and there we have reporting that has been saved of the debates that took place, and they're enormously interesting to read because you see a real appreciation from these early members of Congress as to how big of a deal suspension is and a real reluctance to invoke the power. We have numerous statements saying there's no way the conditions warrant this. This is a last gasp power that should only be invoked when the nation's future and very existence is under threat. And so what happens is, and in fact, it's Jefferson's son-in-law who really puts the brakes on this. The House votes it down and they refuse to give Jefferson the power. And then a very interesting thing happens on the ground. There were prisoners in custody and they were in military custody suspected conspirators with Burr. And as soon as the suspension is voted down, the Jefferson administration immediately transfers the prisoners to civilian custody and charges them with crimes and proceeds against them through traditional criminal prosecutions. So this is an important debate because it underscores how dramatic suspension is and and an appreciation for how big of a deal it is and how rarely we should invoke it. And it also underscores that in the absence of suspension, prisoners, domestic prisoners, must be dealt with through the criminal process. And speaking of the importance of suspension, you know, how, you know, how big an event something must be compared to, say, as you as you said, you know, the minimal threat that Burr actually posed to the nation what most people might be familiar with when we talk about habeas corpus and suspending it is the American Civil War. And you 
give a lengthy discussion to not just Abraham Lincoln's, you know, much more known suspension of habeas corpus, but also the Confederate side of that when Jefferson Davis suspends habeas corpus and how the Confederacy handles that. So what are the differences between both sides and how they handle this? And what does it show about the kind of understandings of the word of habeas corpus? So that was a really interesting and fascinating and fun part of the book on which to work, writing about the Confederacy and how they looked at this. So much of suspension clause uh, jurisprudence and literature focuses on what the Union did during the Civil War, and rightly so, because Abraham Lincoln did a lot of things, many of which walked up to and in some cases, in my view, crossed the constitutional line, as it were. But no one had really compared what had been done in the Confederacy to see in real time what others who had come out of the same legal backdrop, the same constitution, the same English legal backdrop before that, what they thought about these questions. And what I found was a very different approach um, and lessons to be learned from both experiences. So to take one example. As many people know, Abraham Lincoln early in the war declared uh, or claimed the power of suspension for himself and in fact delegated the power to suspend to his military leaders to protect the rail lines, among other things, and and to help protect the Capitol, which was very much under threat. He did this ahead of Congress, and Congress uh, might have been able to meet in short order and give him the power but he did not go to Congress for two years and ask for legislation to give him the sort of imprimatur of authenticity or, or, or um, you know, uh, to give him the power to do it. He claimed it for himself for two years and by the end had declared a nationwide suspension on his own. Now that goes against all of English history and tradition. The story that I've told and, and that's chronicled in the book is a story that's tied up with the legislature in the English context, parliament, taking power away from the executive and not allowing the executive to make decisions about individual liberty on his or her own. And so it's curious that Lincoln would do that and do it for so long when Congress had reassembled and could have passed legislation. So I'm very critical of that in the book. And what's interesting is that if you look at the Confederate experience, Jefferson Davis never claimed the power for himself. And in fact, uh, in one of the suspensions enacted by the Confederate Congress, they actually put in the legislation, this is a legislative power. It is not a power that the executive enjoys and can exercise. So what are they doing there? Well, surely some of that is propaganda oriented. They're trying to criticize Lincoln which was a big part of what Jefferson Davis and the Confederate government did. They were trying to argue throughout the war that they were more respectful of civil liberties. Um, the record doesn't really support that. There, there were extensive suspensions and arrests, a lot of martial law being declared in the Confederacy to allow for these sorts of things and military rule. So uh, the track record both in the North and the South was not strong on this, but of course we were in what Lincoln called a great big giant rebellion. And so 
what I do say in the book is there's no question to my mind that this was the kind of situation the founding generation had in mind when they put in this emergency power, when they included it in the Constitution. And so there's no doubt in my mind that a suspension was warranted in the North, but procedurally, it should have come from Congress. And so that's an interesting contrast. It is also interesting to note that in the South, they had limited suspensions and they did not have suspensions throughout the war and they did not have one for some time in the lead up to the end of the war. Despite Davis requesting renewals of the last suspension, he he did not get that from his legislature, from the Confederate Congress. And that's surely only one very small part of why the South lost the war, but it is a component to it because It's an important emergency power when circumstances are as dire as they were during that time. Yeah, and for me, it's it's really interesting, and I really appreciate the discussion that you had in there um, about the differences between the Union and the Confederate response. Because as you said, you know, a lot of people are familiar, and a lot of people study Abraham Lincoln's suspension, and you know, come to the conclusions that you do for. Uh, or at least a lot of people do that, you know, he wasn't supposed to use it that way, that the founders, like you said, had imagined that a rebellion in the case of the Civil War would have warranted a suspension, but it shouldn't have come from him. But I really appreciate looking at the Confederacy because I think it gives a lot of nuance to what's going on during this war. And it really shows some like critical differences between the way the Confederacy and the Union operates, especially considering, you know, if you were to look at the Confederate Constitution, it's very similar, pretty much word for word, as the U.S. Constitution, with the exception prominently of protecting slavery much more explicitly. Yes, that's right. And I call it the shadow constitution. It's it's a really interesting opportunity to do comparative work. Um in a situation where this is a constitution that is almost identical to the constitution that we know. And these are people who were trained in and came out of the same, the exact same political and legal backdrop. So it's a really fruitful opportunity to look at it and and get a window into how people were thinking about the same problems during this very important period in American history. And moving forward in American history to another prominent um, situation that you deal with is World War II and internment. Um, And I think a lot of people are familiar with uh, the internment of Japanese and Japanese Americans during World War II, uh, especially right now, given the current political situation. But what you do is you look at one, the debate over whether to intern, which I think a lot of people are not exactly familiar with, um, and then explain how much of that is wrapped up in, you know, constitutional law and habeas corpus. So what's going on there? This part of the book was just so much fun to research, but really depressing to research. What do I mean by that? So I think the story begins with Lincoln claiming the power to suspend for himself. It picks up after some great delay with Roosevelt. Roosevelt is often thought of as one of our great presidents, but he was terrible on this issue. And 
the really frustrating and, and depressing part of this story is that in the lead up to adoption of the policies that resulted in the internment of over 100,000 Japanese Americans, over 70,000 of whom were citizens, natural born citizens, uh, is that a number of government lawyers said to the president and to the Secretary of War and others, any detention of American citizens outside the criminal process would violate the suspension clause. The whole point of the clause is to prevent this from happening in the absence of a valid suspension. Those statements went ignored. They went ignored time and time again. And what happens is Roosevelt issues his infamous order 9066 and then General DeWitt issues a series of orders through his military position to cause Japanese Americans to have to evacuate their homes, leave behind their possessions or sell them for pennies on the dollar, report to assembly centers, and ultimately report to these camps for an average stay of three years. And the camps are in really desolate, remote places. And they're guarded by armed guards. They're surrounded by barbed wire. This is effectively imprisonment. And all of this happens against the backdrop of a number of prominent people, including Attorney General Francis Biddle, saying from the outset this would be unconstitutional. Now, when we tend to study this period through constitutional law, and and we teach this to our students in law schools, we focus on the racial and ethnic discrimination. It was at the heart of the policies. The policies uh, were directed exclusively at Japanese Americans, not at Italian Americans or German Americans. So race is a huge, huge part of the story. And nothing about what I'm saying or writing about should, should diminish that in any respect. But my point in the book is that there is another glaring constitutional problem with what happened. And it's particularly poignant when you study it in the context of the 1940s. Because the Equal Protection Clause is not thought and and not held by the Supreme Court to apply to the federal government and mandate non-discrimination based on racial uh, origin until the 1950s. It's not until 1954 that the Supreme Court in Bowling versus Sharp applies the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution to the federal government. So this argument is not easily made in the early 1940s to challenge the Japanese-American internment. But the suspension clause argument is there, and it is a formidable one. And I argue in the book, it is, it is absolutely correct that the suspension clause prohibited what happened. And it should have stopped the government from doing what it did. And what's interesting when you study the period is you see there was a suspension in the Hawaiian territory. And the key actors who were in charge of these policies, like Secretary of War Stimson, understood the importance of that. So he actually moved prisoners back to Hawaii uh, early in the war when he realized that a habeas petition could be filed on their behalf when they were moved to the mainland and there was no suspension in place. So all the key actors understood this backdrop, but the policies went through all the same. And as I also detail in the book, and here I'm borrowing from a number of of great historians who've written on this period, there's really no factual basis for the policy either. The asserted threat, or the alleged threat, I should say, that Japanese Americans posed 
was non-existent. The few Japanese Americans who may have been spying for the Japanese government, they were already either in custody or under surveillance. And the FBI knew this, the military knew this, and, and I highlight in the book a quote from J. Edgar Hoover, who, you know, everybody knows the first director of the FBI loved surveillance. He was no stranger to surveillance. Uh, but even he said, this is the product of public hysteria. There's no factual basis driving this policy. And, and it's, it's a really regrettable thing that it happened. And I hope, if nothing else, that a contribution of the book is that people read about this and that we study it and we learn from it so that we don't repeat these same mistakes. Yeah, for me, I mean, the book as a whole is is one really good, and then two, um, very readable for for me. I mean, I I do legal history and everything myself, but I think anyone could pick this book up without you know a good knowledge of you know legal history, of constitutional history, and you know even just like broad U.S. history, talking about you know the parts of of the history that you're talking about, you know, I think they could pick it up and they would be able to read this very easily um, and understand the complex issues at play. And then, you know, when talking about an issue such as Japanese internment, which a lot of Americans are familiar with, I think someone would pick this up and they would learn a lot about what's going on behind the scenes that went into this happening instead of just knowing that it happened because to me that really gives a lot of useful information and and kind of insight into how you could possibly you know make sure as you just said that this doesn't happen again i i that's wonderful of you to say the book and i appreciate that i certainly wrote this book in the hopes of reading a reaching a broad audience because the stories that i tell in the book our stories about war and political strife and religious strife and the, the, the moments when habeas corpus comes under threat are always moments of great national stress. So the stories, I think, are really interesting, and, and I, I hope the reader finds that to be the case. And here, I really draw a contrast between earlier episodes where you see, for example, as we were discussing earlier, Jefferson loses in Congress. He does not get his suspension. And so what does he do? He doesn't unilaterally claim the power to continue to hold the alleged Burr conspirators in military custody. He proceeds through the proper legal channels to prosecute them. And it's really a, a stark contrast to what the Roosevelt administration did during World War II. And it's a case study in the failings of government and the failings of various regulators within the executive branch to stop this from happening. And so I hope that we can study that episode and learn from it and, and learn that government lawyers play a really important role and that the individuals who hold particular positions in the government, their convictions, their knowledge, and their appreciation for our constitutional traditions and the rule of law are crucially important to the constitution being respected when our government functions. And moving on to a topic that I would hazard most people are familiar with, but 
probably not in the same way that you discuss in the book. Can you explain to our listeners your discussion of the war on terror and the cases that deal with habeas corpus um, there? Because I'm sure that, you know, a lot of people are probably not familiar with these cases, but they're very, they're crucially important to how habeas operates both here and abroad under, you know, American control. Yeah. So in the wake of September 11th, no surprise, the government takes a lot of prisoners and some of them, it turns out, are American citizens. So let's talk about those cases first. You have uh, several American citizens who are captured either on American soil or in the Middle East. One is a prominent case that results in the government criminally prosecuting the individual. Two results in the government labeling the individuals as enemy combatants and holding them in military custody. Now, what is an enemy combatant? This is a new concept. Historically, you had domestic prisoners and then you had prisoners of war. And those are prisoners who fight for a foreign army in a declared state of war. So in the American Revolution, as we mentioned, the Redcoats, the, those fighting for, Brit- for the British uh, were labeled as prisoners of war and held as prisoners of war under international law, which means that you can hold them to, for the duration of hostilities and then they're to be released when the war ends. In the war on terror, this new concept of enemy combatant comes to the fore and it's used to label enemies in the war on terror, citizen or not, uh, and it's used as a justification by the Bush administration to hold these individuals outside the criminal process for the duration of the war on terror. In the case of the two citizens, whose names were Padilla and Hamdi, habeas corpus actions were brought to challenge that designation, and a lot of emphasis was made in their respective claims on their citizenship. Both cases wound up in the Supreme Court in 2004. For various reasons, the Padilla case does not produce a holding on the merits. There were jurisdictional problems, according to the Supreme Court, with where the habeas petition was filed. It was filed in the wrong court, a majority said. But the Hamdi case does result in a decision on the merits. Hamdi had been captured in Afghanistan, brought initially to Guantanamo Bay, and then moved to the United States for detention once his citizenship became apparent, he had been born in the United States. He'd grown up elsewhere. In his case, a fractured Supreme Court ultimately upholds the idea that he can be held as an enemy combatant. And Justice Sandra Day O'Connor wrote for a plurality of justices, that is to say, she couldn't get five full votes for her opinion, but she wrote the lead opinion. And in there, she said there's no bar to a citizen being held as an enemy combatant. And that's significant because that's the first time the Supreme Court has said, when faced with suspension clause arguments, that a citizen could be held outside the criminal process in the absence of a suspension. The case produced some other opinions, and it's a really interesting case to study. Because you have dissenting uh, from or, or disagreeing with uh, Justice O'Connor and dissenting two justices who very, very rarely, excuse me, join together, Justices Scalia 
and Stevens. They very rarely joined together. They tended, more often than not, to approach constitutional law questions from very different perspectives. But they joined together here to dissent and to say, working through some of the history that we've discussed, this is entirely what the suspension clause was meant to prohibit. Namely, the government cannot detain a citizen who can claim the full protection of the Constitution outside the criminal process. The only time the government can do that is under the auspices of a valid suspension. And that hasn't happened here. There's no suspension in place. But they are the only two who subscribe to that position. Justice Thomas agrees with O'Connor and indeed would go even further and give the president very wide discretion to take prisoners. And then you get a concurrence from Justices Souter and Ginsburg. And their concurrence is very interesting because they say in the written concurrence, we basically don't agree with much of anything in Justice O'Connor's opinion, but we're going to join it to give her a court. Because at the end of the day, the O'Connor opinion requires some kind of hearing where there will need to be evidence to support the proposition that Hamdi is an enemy combatant, and he has a right to this hearing, and if the hearing goes his way, he can be released. But if the hearing goes the government's way, he can be held during the war on terror as it unfolds. Now, in their oral presentation of their concurrence, Justice Souter, speaking for himself in Ginsburg, actually said more clearly, we don't agree with any of the constitutional aspects of Justice O'Connor's opinion. I flag that because this is a situation where I think it's really questionable how good of a precedent the Hamdi case is. I think it's a situation where you had a fractured opinion, no opinion for the court, and the decisive votes don't appear to agree with most of what was in the majority opinion. So it will be interesting to see if a case like this arises again, whether the Supreme Court will revisit what was held in Hamdi. Meanwhile, of course, as everyone knows, there were many prisoners brought to Guantanamo Bay. And the prisoners who were brought and stayed at Guantanamo Bay had no prior connection to this country. They were not citizens and they didn't have other connections to the country. So the question then becomes, well, what about them? And the government took the position that they should not have any review of their cases and their labeling as enemy combatants. In a case called Boumediene, which was decided a few years after Hamdi, the Supreme Court, in a closely divided opinion, five to four, written by Justice Kennedy, the then swing voter, the Supreme Court held that, in fact, those kept at Guantanamo Bay do have a right to a hearing before a federal court to challenge their labeling as enemy combatants. This is a really interesting case, and it has provoked legions of commentary from scholars and the judges who have been left to carry out its mandate. What is interesting to me about it is that it's an example of the Supreme Court trying to address a situation that does not have historical parallels because we are not in a declared state of war with other countries as part of the war on terror. And uh, so many of the prisoners who were brought to Guantanamo Bay are from countries with which we have actually good relations. So they don't fall into the classic prisoner of war category under the international law of war. And that created some real challenges for the Supreme Court 
because the classic framework that would have governed their detention doesn't really work. So the Supreme Court came up with a solution that would empower these individuals to go to federal court and seek review of their classification. But at the same time, in trying to come up with a sort of middle ground solution, the Supreme Court did two things that both of which I would say are are arguably problematic. First, the court sent these matters to the D.C. Circuit and lower federal courts in, in the District of Columbia without really any guidance about what they were supposed to do. And a lot of the judges on those courts complain a lot about that fact. And the other thing is, the Supreme Court really seems to have lumped together people like Hamdi and Padilla, citizen uh, prisoners, with the non-citizen prisoners at Guantanamo Bay. In effect, under the Hamdi and Boumediene decisions, all of those people get exactly the same protections. They get a review over whether they can get be properly classified, excuse me, as enemy combatants. The citizens don't get anything more. And that is uh, problematic from a historical perspective because it was long the case that persons who could claim the protection of domestic law, who could claim the full protection of the Constitution, were supposed to get more protection from executive detention. And today where the law has, has settled is to basically give the same protections across the board, and those protections are less than what the historical suspension model provided. Yeah, I mean, I find it so interesting, the conversation that you had in your book and just now about these cases, because, you know, I would hazard to say, like I like I said before, that a lot of people don't exactly know about them. You know, habeas corpus cases, even ones that reach the Supreme Court are not something that are usually, you know, shown in the media with as much, you know, frequency as, you know, any other kind of sort of, say, social issue case. Um, But these are very important for how, you know, law operates in our country and how, as you begin the book and how and how you began this uh, interview talking about how central power is in law and how institutions kind of vie for power and use that power. And so what we have now, as you're saying, is, you know, cases that are, you know, very confusing, don't provide a lot of um, guidance and kind of give a lot of authority over people who are in different situations um, to people, to branches and institutions that you wouldn't normally see. Yes. And, and I, I would say adding to that a couple of things. So the first point is going back to where we began, the writ of habeas corpus at its origins was a judicially created writ. And even when parliament takes over the law of habeas corpus, it uses the courts as a vehicle for enforcing the very strict provisions of the habeas corpus act. And one is left to wonder and looking at cases like Ex Parte Endo and the other cases that came out of the Japanese-American internment and went to the Supreme Court, and a decision like Hamdi, where's the court? What of this tradition? The court is not enforcing these protections. In Endo, they did give Ms. Endo her victory, and that, and that 
victory winds up resulting in the closing of the camps, but it's a narrow victory. It's not on constitutional grounds. So the suspension clause nowhere makes an appearance in Supreme Court jurisprudence during World War II. And the interpretation in Justice O'Connor's opinion in Hamdi of the suspension clause is completely lacking in appreciation for the history. I mean, there's no discussion of the history that my book goes goes into. And, and yet there was a lot of discussion of that history in Justice Scalia and Justice Stevens' dissent. So again, where is the court in all of this? That's a real problem in modern suspension clause jurisprudence. And it's a problem that I hope gets corrected if there are future cases along these lines. The second point I would make, picking up on what you said, is that this is a big issue. It's not just about these limited cases. Because if Hamdi is correct and the government can hold an American citizen on American soil as an enemy combatant outside the criminal process in the absence of suspension, that gives the executive branch a lot of power. And this came up. I actually opened the book with the story of the Boston Marathon bombing. When those suspects or the one surviving suspect was eventually taken into custody, some very serious people, including the late Senator John McCain, suggested that he should be held as an enemy combatant. He should not be criminally prosecuted for what he had done. And at least initially, he should be held as an enemy combatant outside the criminal process. If the Hamdi decision is correct and citizen terrorists can be detained in this way, then that position could have prevailed and may well have been lawful. That's a big transformation of the law from where it stood through much of American history. And that's a big deal. And that would give the executive a great deal of power over individual liberty. And again, here, I think knowing the history is really important to understand that when we talked about habeas and power, what we were talking about predominantly as the story unfolds was taking power away from the executive and putting it in more democratic hands and putting a check, a really serious check in the courts. And so my hope is that the book will contribute to a conversation that will move us back in that direction. Well, before we let you go, um, our listeners are hopefully going to go out and read and buy this book. Again, it's by Professor Amanda L. Tyler, Habeas Corpus in Wartime, From the Tower of London to Guantanamo Bay. So we have this book right now. What can we expect from you in the future? What might you be working on now? Well, I, sh I should tell you that the paperback edition of Habeas Corpus in Wartime is about to come out. It's coming out in September. So uh, look for that. And then waiting in the wings, I am working on a book about Ex Parte Indo, the case that closed the camps. I'm writing a book about the principal players in that case, Ms. Indo herself, her lawyer, Jim Purcell, and going into greater detail of the various government actors who were involved in the lead up and execution of the internment plan and uh, tracing her case all the way to the Supreme Court, discussing the Supreme Court's deciding of her case, and then looking at the effects of her case. It is a fabulous story, because just to give you two sound bites to hopefully whet the reader's appetite, 
Ms. Indo's case being a habeas case, it was the only case that challenged the Japanese American internment outright, as opposed to the criminal regulations that had led up to internment. Those were challenged in the other cases like Korematsu. Because, as I explained at the beginning, habeas jurisdiction follows from detaining someone and the court having jurisdiction over the prisoner. The government lawyers on Indo's case, they were very smart lawyers. They offered her release. They said, please, we'll give you a free release from the camps and settle your case. And they knew that if they did that, her case would go away. She knew that too. And at the age of 20, she turned down the offer of release and stayed in the camps for almost two more years to keep her case alive. Because as she later wrote, it was really important to her to show that Japanese Americans were loyal American citizens. And that is a really extraordinary story. And I'm so excited to be able to tell it. Her lawyer was also exceptional. He was the son of a prison guard. He'd grown up on the grounds of Folsom Prison here in California. And his father had worked with uh, some of the toughest prisoners, uh, those held in solitary confinement, those on death row. And he said that when he visited Japanese Americans at the assembly centers, where they were being rounded up and then sent out to detention camps, when he saw how poorly they were being housed and treated, he thought to himself, this is wrong. They are being treated worse than prisoners at Folsom. And they haven't done anything. They're good Americans. And so he decided that he was going to find a client and file a habeas petition to go after the internment. And he chose Endo as his client to go after uh, the policy and took the case all the way to the Supreme Court. So it's an extraordinary story. And when you talk with Japanese Americans today, they know this story and they know about Jim Purcell. And I've had many people refer to him in my presence as the man who set us free. So I want to write a book that's telling the story of the man and the woman who set them free. And, and so look for that. I, I'm very excited to be working on this project. Well, that sounds certainly very good. And, you know, after reading this book, I'm sure I know myself and I'm sure our, our listeners will very much be looking forward to that book coming out. And I'm sure when it eventually does come out, we'll have you right back on this program to talk about that. I would love that. Well, Professor Tyler, thank you so much for coming on to the program. Thank you for having me. It's been a real privilege. <laughs> 